Hello, welcome to the first episode of The Ripple. This week, I'm talking about stream processing with Michael Dragalis, the creator of the Onyx Stream Processing Framework and founder of the recently acquired Distributed Masonry. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. Honored to be the first guest. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great to have you. So jump right into the sort of current, current events news, which is that uh, recently Distributed Masonry was acquired by Confluent. Uh, so can you kind of give us maybe a little bit of a description of Distributed Masonry, Onyx, PyroStore, um, all of the stuff that you were working on in there? That's right. Um, yeah, I'll pop some items off the stack. I've been around for a while. <laughs> Back in um, 2013, uh, I, I started authoring an open source project. Um, because I was really interested in stream processing. And um, back then, there, there weren't a lot of things around. Today, there's, there's lots of projects that, that fill that space. But back in 2012 and 2013, um, there, there were not a lot of projects that um, could help solve these problems. And I was really interested in distributed systems at the time. Uh, so I threw my hat in the ring and decided to um, you know, spend a fair amount of time investing in building an open source stream platform. And I, I really liked Clojure. Uh, and I, I really liked it back then as well. And so I thought this is a great place to try and um, do something novel. Uh, and so I put about you know a year, year, a year and a half's worth of work into that, and eventually it turned into its own company, which is Distributed Masonry. Uh, and early on, we did lots of consulting work and professional services and you know that sort of thing. And eventually, it, it caught in the attention of uh, an investor who wanted to sort of see um, something more, uh, you know, scalable and, and product oriented behind what we were doing. Uh, the streaming space in, in twenty late twenty fifteen twenty sixteen was really starting to take off. And so, uh, we, you know, we took a, a seed round uh, and uh, hired up a little bit and built PyroStore, uh, which is an alternative backend for Kafka that uh, yields infinite storage capacity by uh, leaning on uh, elastically scalable object stores like Amazon S3. And uh, as recently, as you mentioned, uh, Sherry Masonry has been acquired by Confluent, our new home, uh, and uh, we're, we're very happy with the conclusion. <laughs> Great. Yeah. And so just tell us a little bit about Confluent and uh, Kafka, people who might not know so much about those. Certainly. Uh, Apache Kafka is an open source stream processing software platform that's built on the idea of a distributed commit log. And that's really just a fancy way of saying that it's a, a big queue that you can write messages to and read from them, except that when you read the messages, they aren't deleted after they've been read. And it's that property where Kafka derives its, its functional diversity especially for real-time applications. Um, you have this really solid building block for building, building pub-sub applications in terms of um, you know, event streaming storage. Uh, and from there, the, the Kafka open source ecosystem has built several other projects on top of it, like Kafka Streams, mm -hmm. which is a, uh, a very simple stream processing um, library. KSQL, which is uh, streaming queries, SQL queries on top of Kafka. Uh, you have Kafka Connect, which is for doing uh, streaming ETL, replication, and, and lots of other things. Um, so it's a very vibrant open source ecosystem. And Confluent is the company that came out as an offshoot of that. Uh, Confluent is a, a venture-backed company founded by the creators of Kafka. And the mission is really simple. Uh, it's to build a streaming platform to help businesses gain more leverage over their data. And in practice, this means encouraging companies to transition away from architectures that are um, dense, and complex graphs of service-to-service -service calls and towards a centrally managed service for publishing and subscribing to data across an organization. And we say that when many lines of businesses are connected through that streaming platform, then that platform is a central nervous system for your business. This is 
peak architecture. It's the simplest way that we know today how to build information processing systems. It gives you the most leverage over your data. Um, and that's why Kafka has taken off and, and why Confluent continues to be a strong business. Great. And so why did you decide to join Confluent um, when you were kind of talking with them about this acquisition? And what, what were the values that you saw in that company that you, that you liked? That's a great question. Uh, so we came to a similar conclusion that Jay Kreps, the CEO of Confluent, came to about what's needed to build a strong streaming platform today. And it's that there are many layers to um, getting, you know, getting leverage over your streaming data. But the first one that you need to do really well is storage. You need to be able to capture all of your events in a very high resolution way before you can act on them, before you can um, serve them to other layers. There's lots of pieces down the line that you can do really well, but until you've done storage quite well first, um, you're going to be, uh, you're going to have a really hard time being able to do the rest of them well. And I like Kafka's incrementalism in practice. Uh, and I, I realize how difficult now this is to pull off in practice. And you have, you have Kafka as the, the messaging system, then you have streams on top of it to do compute really well. And on top of that, you have KSQL, uh, you have Connect to be able to, um, uh, be able to, to integrate with uh, other data storage platforms and you know, be able to actually plug into uh, a company in its day-to-day operations. And that, um, that planning is, is strategic. It's premeditated. And there's lots of unknown unknowns. And I, I can appreciate how well they did that. Um, I think the other thing is that with Pyrostore, uh, our, our immediate roadmap was to, to build out support for Kafka um, and, and go very deep with that because uh, there's a lot of mindshare on Kafka right now. But on our roadmap, we were interested in building alternative backends for Kinesis, uh, maybe Pulsar, and other messaging systems. But the thing is that Kafka has such a dominant market share right now that the opportunity to join forces with Confluent was uh, too much to pass up on. Being able to, to bring this kind of value to the world um, or you know, be able to help out in this in some manner is just uh, a really big deal for us. Uh, and so it, I keep coming back to, like in a world where software is so screwed up all the time, I think event-driven systems are a relief. <laughs> you know, like software is, is meant to be a reflection of reality. It's not reality itself. And that's what event-driven systems encourage. They capture the raw stream of events as they happen, and then you interpret it later. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I, I think it's a, a chance to do a lot of good for, um, for an industry that's moving so fast. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's uh, I, I like that. Um, and so... So I should mention um, that uh, at Day Eight, uh, the company I work for, uh, we uh, you know contracted with Distributed Masonry to kind of look at uh, using Onyx for some some stream processing stuff. Um, so just want to get that disclosure uh, out of the way. Um, but while we were looking at that, um, we came across this um, this tricky question, um, which you addressed in Pyrostore, which was you know, retaining the data, um, you know, how long do we retain it for? What do we do when stuff drops off the end of the, the queue? Where, you know, where does that information go? So can you talk a little bit more about that retention problem and what some of the other strategies are that you can address this with, um, you know, and, and how you know, Pyrostore uh, handily beats them? Definitely. So the thing is that event sourced architectures in theory are this incredibly powerful tool. There's lots of papers about them. Back in like 2014, 2015, the idea of the log became really popular uh, and, and everyone was really thinking about this. And the one thing that everyone seemed to be missing was that there's this subtle dependency that you could 
actually keep all of your events forever because replay was this fundamental building block that we would uh, build these sophisticated yet simple architectures on. You can always replay the data and get a, you know, take a pristine snapshot of what's going on and reinterpret it differently. Um, and a lot of companies, when they move towards this architecture, uh, have enough data that this is kind of a pain, or uh, they just, you know, they, it's too expensive, or you, you know, you can't um, put enough uh, operational effort into it, and so they degrade to using something called snapshotting, which is taking a consumer off of that log, playing all the events, and materializing the state, and then persisting that state somewhere and associating the offset that represents the state as of that point in time. And they allow events to drop off the end of that log. And when a new service comes up and needs to learn what's on that log, it loads in that state from persistent storage and then continues to read along. And this gains some of the benefits. But for applications like machine learning, where you actually need um, raw access to all of the events, um, the aggregate of those events, the snapshot, has you know, effectively destroyed data. And so this is a really a lossy approach. Uh, and we saw enough of these situations going on in the wild that it was you know, kind of screaming for an abstraction. And so you have Kafka, which is you know, the thing everyone's using to be able to store their events. But Kafka is today a one-size-fits-all system. This is just part of its architecture. It was designed um, for a certain type of setup, and it does it really well. But for the kinds of problems that we were looking at, it was not such a great fit. And the issue is that Kafka brokers co-locate their storage and their compute resources. It's optimized to be an extremely high throughput system. Um, and so if you want to store more data, you can do things like attach bigger storage volumes to be able to store more data uh, and just you know, keep blowing out your disks. But you know, for how long can you really do that for? Um, some people instead dump all their data to like a big SQL database or to a file system, but then you've lost the streamability of that data. And so we looked at these things and we thought, so surely... Uh, there was something we could do. And as it turns out, this is like just difficult enough of a problem that no one really wanted to build it. Or, <laughs> and it was actually fairly complex from a distributed systems point of view. Uh, and it ended up being a great product to build. Uh, so PyroStore, as I said, was an alternative backend for Kafka based on object storage in cloud providers. Uh, and it, it offered these wonderful properties in that, uh, A, it's very cheap to store all your data. B, you've pushed all the operational concerns and reliability onto a cloud provider. Uh, and see, there's no provisioning of that data. You don't need to allocate big disks up front. You just sort of plug this in, and you have this elastic storage backend for Kafka. Um, and so the, the the question used to be, like, why would I incur the cost of storing this? And it became, um, will I never need this data in the future? And the answer is usually, like, you, you can't know that. You know, data derives its value based off of future, future um, contexts. And so being able to keep data around for cheaply enough really incentivized people to, to keep more. Uh, and that was actually this like, um, you know, circle of goodness where because you could store more data, you would store more data and you might get more value out of it someday. And so you kind of continue to feed on that. Yeah. Yeah. When, when I saw the, the kind of solution you described um, in, the, in the blog post announcing it um, a couple of months ago, I thought, oh, this is, this is it. This just nails it on the head um, that it really kind of solved, solved the problems that we were seeing. Um, and yeah, does it in, a, in an especially cost-effective way. So uh, what are some of the, the other technical innovations that you're really proud of uh, producing uh, in Onyx or PyroStore that you, you know, you've been working on this for, for many years now? Um, what are some of, kind of the, the highlights technically for you? Yeah, I think um, there, there's a couple things. So, so going back to Onyx in the, in the beginning, 
Uh, I'm really proud that the, well, this is not really a technical innovation. It is um, sort of at the abstraction level. And the the programming model that Onyx offers um, has endured for five years since since we've started building it. Uh, And I I think that that's, um, I think that that's an achievement all on its own. Because while the runtime and the implementation has changed out from underneath it, it was the abstraction that was the whole reason to build Onyx. Um, This idea that, you know, um, your program could be almost entirely defined by data, that it needed a highly flexible nature to be able to grapple with, you know, real world problems. Um, the, the fact that that model has remained unchanged to me is, um, you know, a sign that we, we got that right. Uh, the other thing that I'm, I'm quite proud of is the coordination architecture. Um, so inside of Onyx is actually a log that's used to coordinate all the peers who, who do all the, the work and the, and the tasks to, you know, distribute the messaging workload and those sorts of things. And, you know, in practice, when you use Onyx, you often use a, a log for your actual messages. And so there's, it's kind of a log within a log. And I really like building things that have this like second level of um, not mystery, but sort of like interest to them. It's not obvious at the surface level. Uh, and so the fact that, you know, the log oriented architecture works for streams, which are typically based on logs was, was quite validating and always, you know, fun all the way, but it also reaped the benefits that people normally get with logs we just got them at a layer that no one else was uh, usually able to see them at. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice when you can see that see patterns, you know, show up again and again, up and down the the layers of abstraction. That's usually a, usually a sign of a good good uh, design. Exactly. Yeah, um, and so um, you know the reason why you know I'm particularly interested in in Onyx and in Pyrostore initially was uh, it, you know it was closure based, um, and so you've been building with Clojure now for, for quite a long time. Uh, and and Onyx, Onyx always seemed to sort of be pushing pretty hard on the, the code as data, um, data-oriented design, you know, far further than, you know, something like Storm, which was also a Clojure um, stream processing uh, tool, but it had much more of a macro, macro-oriented API, whereas, uh, you know, Onyx goes, you know, pretty far down the, down the data route. What are kind of some of the the benefits that you've found uh, you know, over over time of of being so data oriented? Yeah, so so to, to prepare for this talk, I looked over my original goals with with Onyx, and I was I'm pleasantly surprised when I look at this. I look at it maybe like once every year and a half or so. Uh, these these goals remain achieved, and we haven't we haven't shied away from them. And it, it's been nice to just see that we've always been moving in a consistent direction with the Onyx code base. But the, the idea to describe to to describe a distributed uh, program with with all data stemmed from uh, a couple of different factors, and I think the primary one was that when I conceived of the idea, I was working in a, an industry, um, business intelligence programs, and uh, a lot of these workloads were dynamically defined, you know, completely dynamically defined. You never knew what exactly you were going to have to assemble to be able to launch off one of these streaming jobs, um, and so primarily uh, the goal was to be able to build a distributed streaming program away from the environment that it will be executed in. Usually you're going to actually build these programs up in JavaScript in the browser. Mm-hmm. A user is going to be assembling some sort of a, a workflow together. And then you need to be able to take that and ship it off and have it run somewhere else. And so you've, you know, you, you have divorced context from where you're building it and where you're running it. Uh, and as a kind of as a consequence of that, you're often going to want to be able to store that program or some representation of it in a database to be executed later. And so you need, you need to have temporal coupling. 
And when you've gone that far, if you can achieve that, now you have the ability to interpret that program in different ways to, to bake in this sense of dynamism. Because of the data structure, you can choose to interpret the data uh, in a way that's um, more beneficial for one context or for another. Along those same lines, you can pull optimizers and DSLs into the top layer. You don't need to, to bake that sort of thing like underneath the API um, because you often can't get that right for everyone. So you can ship optimizers as a library. That work over... Exactly, right. Yeah, and as a final consequence of that, you, you can sort of transcend programming languages. As long as you agree about what the structure looks like, it doesn't matter what language you're, you're building this distributed model in. Um, it's, it's just data that you're going to move back and forth. And so this um, kind of hammered home something that I learned from Stu Holloway many, many years ago. He had this uh, slide of a pyramid, and at the bottom was uh, a, a slab that was labeled information model. And on top of that was API, and on top of that was DSL. You, you build systems to communicate in terms of information first, and then you build APIs on top of that. And, and then finally, if you need to, you build specialized DSLs. And so all of those things compounded um, led me to, to be pretty sure that I was onto the right thing, building Onyx's programming model in that way. And so you've been working on this, you know, the same closure code base. You haven't sort of pulled, you know, it, as far as I know, there was never a big, a big rewrite. It was just kind of continually working and developing on it. How have you found kind of working on you know, a large, complicated closure program over over that length of time? You are right. We've we've never had a, a, a big, complete rewrite. I hadn't really stopped to think about that. I mean, we did swap out the core messaging layer, and that was a big change, but it wasn't um, it wasn't a full refactor or anything. Component was a really big deal when it came out. That was actually right around the time when I started building on it, because I was probably a couple months into it. And I think if if that hadn't launched, I would have had a really hard time managing things for as long as we did. <laughs> I mean, do you do you remember when it came out? What you were doing at the time? Uh, yeah, it was just diffing the the database connections, and uh, <laughs> so yeah, it was it was a, a real revelation um, when it, yeah when I finally understood it. It took me a little while to to kind of get my head around it, but yeah, I, I can't think of another another library that's become so pervasive across all of Clojure. I think that that's the one, uh, and it's the glue that's holding up 95 percent of projects out there. Yeah, yeah, especially large ones. Um, yeah, um, I, I agree. Well, yeah, you know, that or you know one of the descendants, maybe right. Mount or Integrant. Um, but yeah, that that pattern is is really really important. I th- yeah, I think I think the combination of component as well as like closures dynamism that it just has out of the box really reduced the friction for say like introducing another subsystem because um, the things were in a constant state of change for for years. It was it was a new coordination layer, it was a new messaging layer, uh, it was it was optimizations here and there, it was um, you know pretty serious bug fixes now and again, and it was never a headache. Uh, you know, having things set up in that way. Um, really relieved the the effort in terms of doing a refactor and uh not not fighting just the way closure does things and what about just coming back to old code that you wrote that you know was just in a bit of a dusty subsystem that you hadn't come across for a while and then you had to come back to it was that you know how did you find yeah coming back to to that that code it was fine i mean the, the thing is when you isolate your state you you may have written some crappy code but you have the space to work on it in, in isolation. I mean, you can write tests around that. You can you can just sort of load that up in the REPL and just um, rework that in you know in its own little area. 
and especially being able to do that in a fully dynamic environment, um, not having to load up all the dependencies, just being able to isolate that one piece is is really nice. Yeah, 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 I agree. Uh, and so, so Onyx was designed uh, for sort of high throughput, low latency stream processing, and, and Clojure is fast, but you know it, it's there's there's an overhead to it, you know, over over what you might get, you know, from your know, high performance Java. Um, so, what kind of things did you have to do with Onyx to sort of uh, you know get hit those performance goals that you had? So the thing is. Um... Most people say that they need a really, really fast streaming system, but they don't actually need it to be that fast. Um, this is the one realization that I've had. We, we designed Onyx to be quick, but I've met very few people over the years who truly needed this bleeding edge performance that I think people like to make a big deal out of about it because it's you know it's fun. Uh, <laughs> but in practice, you know, a couple you know tens of milliseconds, even a hundred milliseconds here and there uh, has has really not made a difference to anyone. And I think an example of this is. Uh, how pervasive Amazon's Lambda has become. Uh, Lambdas have the disadvantage of having a cold start. Occasionally, if you know you're you haven't run the thing in a while, you're going to take a, a cold start, and it might be a couple seconds before the thing comes back. And that was eye opening for me because I realized how many people accepted that trade off out of you know, ease of operational complexity, or more importantly, their their application requirements actually did just allow that. So, you know, all that said, just to answer your question, Onyx is fast, and I think it came down to like understanding how things really work in Java. Mm-hmm. And we got a lot of the, the juice out of it by integrating Aaron, which is a, a messaging layer written in Java by um, Martin Thompson. Uh, and, and wow, is, is that team incredible? I mean, they, that messaging system took so much off our plate. Uh, if you want to look at how to write fast Java, those are the people to go and, and study their work and learn from them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it really comes to understanding the environment that you run in and occasionally maybe just writing, dropping down to Java and, and writing things there. Uh, I'm sure you could do everything in Clojure if you wanted to, but, uh, it's some, sometimes it's just sort of a practical trade-off, um, to, you know, which way you're going to go. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Um, the, that, uh, Martin Thompson, uh, and, uh, people, people with that kind of bent, uh, there's a mailing list, uh, that they run called mechanical sympathy um i'll add that to the to the show notes but i've been following that along for quite a few years now and you know i i learn a ton of stuff about the jvm and garbage collection and low latency high performance uh servers which is you know sort of world world-class expertise um on offer there it's a, it's an art form into of itself the way that martin does it <laughs> yeah yeah um and so uh knowing what you know now you've kind of got five years of experience working on this if you were to to start again today you you know got to kind of shift shift the world backwards five years so you're 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 in 2018 but you're just about to start a new stream processing service and you can use all of today's closure libraries and all of the other technology that's that exists today uh would you make any different decisions um around Either still using Clojure or a particular, um, you know, com- you know, using component or integrant that that kind of stuff. I would I would certainly still use Clojure. Um, I think I, I would probably give a little bit more mind share to the way that other languages would be supported. Um, that was something I sort of bolted on later uh, later in the life cycle, and really nothing more than Java was ever supported. Um, that ended up being a really tough problem, and all of the solutions were really suboptimal. Um, but I think the thing is that, like, 
all of the ideas were inspired by closure. And I was, I was never really able to get the ideas across at least early on to anyone who wasn't using closure. And I think um, a lot of languages don't use or, or don't make as big of a deal as this first class data representation as, as closure does. I mean, Rich just banged on the drum for years and years and years about it. <laughs> and I know other, other communities really know it, but I think it just cuts right to the heart of what closure does. Uh, and that's, that's the thing that I like most about the community is it's primarily about thinking and ideas. And, and yeah, maybe we could have had a wider user base if we did most of it in Java or we, we purposely targeted, you know, less closure usage, but, uh, being able to, and this is totally off the question because I know it's a technical question, but being able to learn from so many wonderful people in the community has been like what's made this worth it. And I think at this point, the ideas have floated outside the Onyx ecosystem anyway. And so that's, that's the important part for me. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, the community is, is a huge factor. So, so you've been working in the streaming world with Onyx for the last five or so years. What are, what are some of the trends that you can see coming in the future that people who aren't, you know, watching it so closely, aren't living it day to day, aren't, what, what, what should, should we be looking out for? Just to go back to, um, the, the vision that, that Jay has kind of seen and that we've also seen it's that storage is continuing to, to be hardened as a, an element of, the, the streaming ecosystem and that you have to get storage right before you get other things right. Uh, I think I, I would keep an eye on um, the way that these products are moving, Kafka, and there's, there's plenty of others. They're going to continue to get better and better. And I think that this is, this is the, the first step for doing many more powerful things. And the second is that things will be continued to be uh, normalized for the common case. And as an example of this, it's like what I was saying before, where people don't need bleeding edge performance. Um, and this is where Kafka Streams was really brilliant. So Kafka Streams differs from Onyx in that the execution is entirely local. It, it builds directly on top of Kafka's client consumers and uh, you assemble a program and then that program runs entirely on the you know, single machine. You don't have a separate processing cluster. You just have your program that executes where you tell it to. And so in a, an age of like 2014 where everyone was doing these, um, you know, these massive Hadoop clusters, uh, Kafka went in the other direction and they actually shrinked all these things to something that was actually more useful for uh, what people needed day to day, even if they weren't really admitting it. And so uh, sort of a shift, sort of seeing a shift away from everything being massively distributed to being more conveniently executed uh, on a local machine and managed through something like Kubernetes to get that distribution or that, that fault tolerance and load balancing. Uh, I, I think that those are the two big trends that I've been seeing in the last few years. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, uh, and so you know you've you've joined onto joined with Confluent. Um, so what does this mean for the future of Onyx? Yeah, so Onyx will continue to remain open source. Uh, unfortunately, it's it's mainly if I'm being honest, it's mainly going to be community driven. Um, you know, the the people who have worked at Distributed Masonry with me uh, are now super heads down with what we're doing at Confluent. We're doing something very exciting. And five years is a lot of time to be intimately involved uh, with with an open source project. So it's it's going to stay alive uh, for sure. It's definitely not dead by any means. Um, mm-hmm. But you know we we can't spend uh, our working hours supporting it now. So uh, you know it does lose a little bit of momentum in that respect. Sure. Yeah. I think you've done done a great job on it, and it's not you know especially with with closure projects being so you know, stable and long lasting. It's not like it's it's going anywhere. Is there anybody you'd like to thank or mention? Uh, 
you know, in from your journey with Onyx? Yeah, huge, huge shout out to everyone who worked in distributed masonry and my co-founder Lucas Bradstreet. It's been uh, a heck of a ride over the years, but it's been it's been really fun. Um, definitely like to thank our our investor Lou Otien. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been behind you know, some of the you know the the earliest uh, adaptation of Closure, and he's uh, just an incredibly supportive investor and friend. So it's it's been great to have him uh, along for the ride. Um, and just just everyone who's encouraged me over the years. Um, it's, it's been a long time since distributing masonry got started, and, and building a company is really hard. Uh, and there's there's plenty of times when you have nothing left. You, you truly have absolutely nothing, and the only thing that you can go on is um, the enthusiasm and the encouragement of your friends. And that's that's such a big deal. It's it's not kind of being a blowhard. It's that stuff really matters. And so, just, yeah, anyone who's listening, um, I really really appreciate everyone who's give me a pat on the back or some kind of encouragement because it's, it's mattered. Right. Yeah. Uh, and is there anything else you'd like to plug in closing? Yeah, I don't have anything, any, anything that I'd like to plug, but I guess now that I've had a little time off after the company's been acquired to sort of like um, just reflect on the journey, the, the recurring message for me has been it's, that it's important to continue to get back to your roots and, always remember what makes you an individual because um, you, know, you are a completely unique person. Your, your gene arrangement will never be repeated. It's never happened before and is highly unlikely to ever happen again. So you have a very <laughs> unique perspective on the world uh, and, you know, stay creative. Don't let anyone get you down. You keep going long enough and you self-evaluate um, that interesting idea and that thing you're working on could really, really turn into something awesome and uh, have a high impact on the world. So uh, keep going. <laughs> Awesome. Well, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today, uh, especially the first um, first episode of this podcast. Uh, and I'm going to keep a close eye on the Confluent blog to see uh, see what you come up with out of that. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Daniel.